now? No? <laughs> How about now? Now it's working. Okay, praise God. I hate to have to yell. But I have to do that sometimes in Africa and Asia. Places, if there's a big room and there's no, uh, no microphone, you just learn to adjust. Speaking of Africa, last week, Brian began his message by, or spoke at the beginning, asked me to pray for him. As he was on his way to Zambia, I can report that he made it there safely. Um, just heard this morning from a couple other of our missionaries who are in London on their way to Ghana. Things are opening up. Some travel is, is beginning to get started again, praise God. And I would also ask you to pray for me. I leave on Tuesday to go to Uganda to... Uh, explore some new areas for us where there might be a potential for Timothy 2 to do some work. Uh, and I will also be making a side trip to Oringa, which is a special place with Myrtle Grove, and be greeting and encouraging those precious folks there. In fact, on my way here to church this morning, I was in Porter's Neck. I, I, we're staying here in Myrtle Grove. I had to drive to Porter's Neck to get the swab, the, cop, the COVID swab. Uh, because they require, Uganda requires that I have that within 72 hours of departure. So anything after 11.30 or before 11.30 last night would have been too soon. So I got up early this morning, drove to Porter's Neck so they could swab my nose. And now I'm waiting for the results. <clears throat> I don't like to wait. I don't think any of us do. You know, you go to the checkout counter at the grocery store, it says 10 items or less, and you see someone with 12 items. And you're like, ugh. And, and, and you start getting frustrated because you're thinking, I'm going to have to wait longer. Beep, beep, that much longer. But, but that's enough to get us upset. We are an impatient culture. Uh, it, it's kind of bred in us from probably, I think the day they invented the microwave, I think that kind of did it for us. But, but we want things now. We don't want to wait. That's not in our DNA. Well, the title of my message today is, When God Says, Wait. And I hope that in our time here this morning, we will get a fresh consideration for what it is to wait on the Lord. Our passage, if you'll turn to 2 Peter, the third chapter, we'll be reading and studying together verses 8 through 15. 2 Peter, chapter 3, verses 8 to 15. And if you found your place, and if you're able, I would ask that you stand for the reading of God's Word. Peter writes, Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved? and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. 
Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him. The precious reading of God's holy word. Father, we have your word before us. What a blessing to be able to hear you speak to us through your word. I pray, Lord, in our time together this morning that your spirit will so move us and guide us that we will come away knowing that we have heard from you. And I ask, Lord, that you would uh, just, just use me as your instrument, that you would be the object of all of our praise and glory this morning. I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. As a missionary, I'm often given the opportunity to speak in churches. It's a conviction of mine that if I'm going to get in front of a church on Sunday morning when they are normally gathered for corporate worship, I don't want to just tell stories about me. Uh, that's the time that God has called us, has gathered us as a corporate body to hear Him, hear His Word. And so I always try to incorporate uh, God's Word into those opportunities. And I have a message that I share fairly regularly, and it's entitled, When God Says Go. And it's based on God's call to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And Abraham, as an older man, much older man, packed up everything and went when God said, Go. Well, I could also use Abraham as a model for when God says wait, right? The promise of the covenant child that, that took a lot longer than anybody had anticipated, or at least certainly longer than he and his wife had anticipated. But today we're going to use as our text this passage in Peter and try to explore uh, what it is to wait for God's timing and before we get into the text that we just read, we do need to back up a little bit. I would encourage everyone, when you are doing a Bible study on a passage, especially on a New Testament letter, even if your study is in the last chapter of the letter, take just a minute to go to the first chapter of the letter. To situate the letter, to understand who it's written to, what the context is, so that you'll better understand the text that you're reading. So at the very first verse of this letter, Peter writes, To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So right there, we have the context. This is not a letter willy-nilly to just anybody. This is a letter to those who have an equal faith with the apostles, with Peter who got that faith, that standing, not by their own righteousness, but by the righteousness of Christ. And he begins this same chapter that same way. He uses the term beloved in chapter 3, verse 1. So we have a very uh, specific focus of people to, he, to whom he is writing. And so to that audience over the next few verses, in verse 2, he says, remember the predictions of the prophets. Remember the commandments of the Lord Jesus Christ as was given through the apostles. And then in verse 3, he says, know this, first of all, scoffers will come in the last days. And they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. And then Peter reminds his audience, remember, in verse 5, the earth was formed by the word of God. In verse 6, by that same word, the world was deluged with water and perished. And in verse 7, that's by that same word, the heavens and the earth are stored up 
for fire kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. So that's setting the stage for what we're reading today and what we're discussing today. The first point that I want you to get is that Jesus will come again. Amen? Jesus will come again. So while we're waiting, we wait in faith. We wait in confidence. We wait believing that he will come again. Peter's point is that a lot of people don't believe. A lot of people doubt. A lot of people scoff. And he says, many have scoffed before the flood. They didn't think God was going to do anything. They didn't think God was really a God of judgment. Or they didn't even think there was a God. And so they scoffed. But the destruction came. And many mocked and scoffed before the first advent or the first arrival of God on earth in the form of the baby, Jesus. Israel labored for, for generations, for, for, for centuries, waiting for the promise of the Messiah. And some lost hope. And I would argue that if you could look in the entire history of the world, the two most cataclysmic events thus far to this date in the history of the world were the destruction of the world in the flood and the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Both of those events were mocked, uh, that were, were, were scoffed at, were mocked at. And Peter is saying, those two events are going to happen again and they're even going to happen at the same time this time. Jesus is coming again, the second advent, and at that coming will be the destruction of the world. And he says, in the last days, many will be scoffing at that. In verse 5, he said, they were ignorant. In verse 8, he says, don't be ignorant. It's the same word in the Greek. They, they overlooked this fact. He's telling them, don't you overlook this fact. And above all, the number one takeaway Peter is wanting us to get from this is be encouraged. Be encouraged as long as it might seem to be taking, Jesus will return. Last week, Brian spoke to the reality of, of what can be a hard life as a follower of Christ. Christ himself said that the servant is not greater than the master, and look what happened to the master. But Peter's saying, be encouraged. Don't be like the scoffers or the doubters of old. But Peter's point isn't only about encouragement. He's also talking about the end of this fallen world. And so the second takeaway is that just as the world was destroyed, it will be yet again. Beloved, his return is both glorious and dreadful. Let me say that again. The return of Jesus will be both glorious and dreadful. Peter ties the second advent with the second destruction, the ultimate destruction of the world. We have two little, little boys. One turns five in two weeks and the other is six. And they love children's stories. And one of the ones that we often come across in Bible books is Noah's Ark. But I would, I would suggest that Noah's, the story of Noah's Ark is not really a children's story, or certainly not only a children's story. And neither is the second coming. 
Both, both are full of the grace and goodness of God, but both are also full of the wrath and the judgment that, that God brings on the ungodly and on those who have scoffed and mocked. If you've ever seen, there's a painting, uh, I think it was in the 19th century, Gustave Doré. Um, he painted, uh, it's called The Deluge. And it's uh, uh, his, his vision of what it was like at the flood. Not of, not of Noah and not of the ark, but of those outside. And there's this rock rising up out of the ocean. It's only about this far out. And there's a couple of people on there trying to pull other people up. There's animals holding their young in their mouth on top of that rock. And it gives you just an image, a visual image of, of just the, the, the dread for the world that wasn't safe in the ark. And lest you think that I'm being overly dramatic, Jesus said in Matthew 24, Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he'll set them over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, Jesus' audience would understand this imagery of being cut in pieces or cut in two in some translations. That's not, that wasn't an unheard of event. As a matter of fact, tradition says that, uh, that Isaiah was martyred that way under the wicked king, Manasseh. And then the precious verse, the, the beautiful verse that we have on our mugs and on our bumper stickers and on our plaques, John 3:16. What a precious, beautiful picture of the grace and goodness of God. But we often stop there without reading it in its fuller context. If you continue in verse 17, Jesus says, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Praise God. But then verse 18 says, whoever believes in him is not condemned. Whoever does not believe is condemned already. You see, God's, God is sending salvation to a world that stands condemned. And for all who do not believe, the condemnation remains. So in verse 4 this, of our passage, the scoffers said, what of the promise? What of it? Peter says, God is not slack or slow concerning his promise. At least not as we think of that. We might think of it as being lazy or procrastinating. He's saying, no, 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 that's not what's happening. And in verse 13, if you're wondering just what is the promise, the promise is of the destruction of the world and the new heavens and the new earth. We might look at the world, especially in this day and age, and think, wow, it's time for him to come now. It's bad here now. Well, we're not the first ones to do that. If you read Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians, that was one of the big issues. They had stopped working and they were just staring in the sky waiting for Jesus. And Paul had to kind of correct that a little bit. And on the other hand, when Jesus does return, there will be people who think he came too soon. And so Peter explains, a day with the Lord is like a thousand years. A thousand years is like a day. And that's not meant as a calculation. It, we can't say, okay, so 4,000 years is four days. It, it, it's, it's not a mathematical formula. 
I wish the people that teach that would stop it. <laughs> it gets very, very frustrating when people start using this as a math. That's not what the point. The point is, it's not the same. God's perception of time and our perception of time are different. And we can't say, okay, it's time for you to come back now. This is the right moment. God will come at his appointed time. So it begs the question, why is he waiting? Peter gives us the answer in verse 9. He says, the, pa- the, the Lord is patient toward you, not willing that any of you would perish. This verse is another one that's on a lot of posters and things in Christian households, and it's, again, it's the Word of God. Amen. But we need to understand what it's saying here. There's really... Historically, traditionally, the way we've understood the will of God is that there's three ways to understand God's will. The first is God's sovereign will, His hidden will, where every single thing that occurs in the history of the world is under His sovereign hand. One author said that there's not a single rogue atom in the universe. Because if there was, that atom could bump into another one and bump into another one and and cause chaos and unravel whatever God had planned. No, God is sovereign over all. But then we have the preceptive will or the revealed will of God, and that's his, His Word, our Bible. And in that, we know what He wants us to understand of His will. We know that we're not supposed to kill, we're not supposed to steal, we're not supposed to take his name in vain. He gives us that. And then we have finally what's known as the will of disposition or those things that that please God. Kind of the flip side of this verse is in Ezekiel 18.32 where it says, he takes no delight or no uh, pleasure in the death of the wicked. And yet, his wrath will be poured out on them. We are not saved from the devil. (laughs) We are saved from the wrath of God. You know, it's just like with, I mentioned our two little kids. I don't like to discipline them, but I will. I don't take any delight in the actual process of discipline, but I do take ultimate delight in what I hope will prove to be a character-building exercise in their lives. So this verse isn't about uh, God sitting up in heaven, wringing his hands, saying, oh, I hope they all get saved, and being frustrated when that's not the case. If that's your picture of God, it's not the God of the Bible. This verse is about the gathering of the elect. It's about repentance. As as Peter goes on to say, God is not slack. He's, He's not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. That's the essence of what we're, what we're talking about in this verse, is that God is waiting for us to repent. Jesus said, without, repent, without repentance you will perish. But both Advents, the first Advent that we talk about at this time of year, and the second Advent that we are hopefully looking forward every day of the year, are about God's work in salvation. The first Advent, if you remember the story of Simeon in, in Luke chapter 2, old devout man sees the baby the Lord had promised him that he would see him before he died see the Messiah before he died and he holds the baby Jesus in his hands and he says this is the consolation of Israel 
He knows the Messiah has come. The second advent will be the final act of salvation, not just for Israel, but for all believers. How much more anticipation should we have than they did when they were shrouded in the unknown? They didn't know all of the details that we have, uh, have revealed to us now in Scripture. So the first point is Jesus will return. He will come again. The second point is that we should live like we believe it. We should live like we believe it. Verse 11, Peter says all these things, all the destruction, all these things sh shall be dissolved. In the Greek, it's actually a present tense. All these things are being dissolved. In other words, it's a done deal. It's not open for debate. It's not, uh, it's not a thing that, that may or may not happen. All this destruction is happening. What dreadful judgment is going to rain down on the world. And so we are not to live as the scoffers. Remember, Peter said they were ignorant. They overlooked it. Don't be like that. Nor are we to lose, live as those who doubt or lose hope. Instead, we should meditate on that impending destruction, not because of politics or because of uh, man-made wars or issues like that, but because of the wrath of God that is being poured out on this world at the end time. And we should be moved by that to pursue holiness and to be comforted that we are His. We are safe in the ark. In Matthew 24, Jesus makes this allusion also. He says, as it was in the day of Noah, so it will be at the return of Christ. Those who are safe in the ark can, can rest and be comforted and know that, we, that he's got us covered. But woe to those who are not in the ark. So beloved, what occupies our minds? How do we respond when God says wait? Or is Jesus at the center of our thoughts or is he out at the periphery? Is our time and our talent and our treasure frittered away on things of no eternal value? Do we squander whatever the Lord has blessed us with on things that really won't matter when this moment happens? Do we live like those who mocked Noah? I'm not talking about who we are necessarily, but how we, how we live our lives. Do we, do, do we go through our lives like those who mocked Noah and just, just carry on as if there's nothing going on with God? Or do we live as Noah, standing for the Lord in the, sake, in, in the face of that mocking, whether they're mocking us or mocking God? Do we stand for the Lord no matter what? Well, Peter says when, when God says wait, we should, in verse 11, wait with lives of holiness and godliness. If I were to try to describe to you me, myself, my life, holy wouldn't be at the top of the list. But praise God for grace. See, the standard is holiness. The standard is perfection. I will never live up to it. And neither will you. But Jesus did. And if we are in the ark, if we are in Christ, then his righteousness is credited to me and to you. And so God looks at us through the filter of the righteousness of Jesus and he says, you're holy, you're righteous, you're clean. Praise God. 
And then in verse 12, he says we should be waiting expectantly. You know, if this was a Hollywood script, they might have Jesus come back during a, a revival or maybe during a praise and worship concert or something that, when it would just seem apropos. But Hollywood's not writing this, God is. So what happens if he comes back during your business meeting on Tuesday or at the, at the baby shower Friday night? Will he still find you waiting expectantly, longing for the day when he returns? Peter also says in verse 12, we should be hastening the day. Now, don't get me wrong. We can't change God's mind about when he's coming. God, hey, he's fixed that day. He knows what he's got planned. No one else does. Believe me, no matter what people tell you, no one else does. But he has included his church as a means of accomplishing what needs to happen in the world before the return of Jesus. Gospel proclamation from the pulpits, evangelism, missions. Jesus says also in Matthew 24, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. That leads us, that gospel proclamation leads us to verse 15 in our conclusion, where Peter says, count the patience of our Lord as salvation. The patience of the Lord is salvation. Patience is a grace period. Remember those when we were uh, in school and we would, the teacher would say, well, the assignment's due on Friday, but if you get it in first thing Monday, I won't take any points off. That's a grace period. Or maybe your credit card bill is due on the 12th, but they tell you, you have a, a few days, if you, if you pay it, there won't be any interest assessed. That's a grace period. The patience of God is a grace period. So back to Noah, are you in the ark? Are you safe in the ark? Have you been saved? If so, aren't you grateful for his patience? If you were saved in 1974, aren't you glad he didn't come back in 73? The patience of the Lord is what's allowing the ingathering of his sheep until the last called sheep is in the fold. Beloved, have you not yet been saved? Or are those, and I'm sure this is the case with every one of us, are there those whom we love who are not yet saved? Do not presume. Not, don't presume on the Lord's patience, not for another day, not for another moment. As for those we love, pray earnestly for them. Pray, pray passionately for them, begging that the Lord would bring salvation into their lives. And as for ourselves, Peter says in verse 14, be diligent to be found without spot or blemish. That's not me. And that's not you. That's Jesus. He's saying, be diligent to be in Christ. Be found in Christ. Be saved. Take advantage of the opportunity of God's patience, God's grace period between the first advent and the second advent and use this time to be, as he says in verse 14, at peace. Paul writes in Romans 5, we have peace with God only 
if we are in Christ Jesus. And as a postscript, if you will, I don't know if people still do PSs. Kind of silly to do a PS in an email when all you have to do is go up and add another line. It's not like a letter where you have to add it at the bottom. Anyway, Peter honors Paul. Do you see the last little bit there? He says, just as our beloved Paul also wrote in his letters. One of those letters was Galatians. And in the second chapter of Galatians, Paul says some stuff about Peter. He opposed Peter. And yet Peter honors Paul and calls him beloved brother Paul. You see, we're all in this together. We, if we're truly Christ's, then we are also truly one another's as well. Even those with whom we disagree or those who disagree with us. So God is being patient with us. Let us be patient with each other. And then together we can watch for, expectantly watch for, and hasten the return. The second advent, not when he comes as a humble lamb to the slaughter, but when he comes as a roaring lion, as a king to lay claim to his kingdom in this world. And woe to all who aren't bowing the knee faithfully and willingly at that moment, because they will eventually. He will return. When God says wait, just wait for it. He will return. So let's live like we believe it. Even so, come again, Lord Jesus. Amen. Join with me in prayer and, and start preparing our hearts. Uh, we're going to be taking communion. This will be a good time for us to reflect on uh, what God is calling us to do uh, this morning. Communion is a way of being nourished in those places in our lives where we are, uh, where we struggle, where we have challenges. Communion is not for perfect people. It's for people who know they're not. Father, your word to us is sweet, and yet it is also strong. The message of the Savior coming at the first advent was a precious moment. Coming at the second will also be precious for those who are safe inside Christ. But Lord, you have destruction in store for those who aren't. May we live like we know you're coming. May we be on our knees begging for the souls of those we love that are lost. And for the lost who we don't even know in every nation, tribe, people, and tongue around this planet. Lord, may your kingdom shine brightly. And may we sing with all of creation, worthy is the Lamb.